Oh, yes. <laughs> Last one, tree. Okay, metamorphoses. Yes, what do the serpents do? Good. So serpents, yes. Anything else? You said trees? Mm-hmm. Suicide victims. Suicide victims become trees. Yep. Anything else? Yeah. I actually just had a question about that. Because, like, does one guy just become a bush instead? Like, everyone else is a tree? Yeah. Why? Like, it's not. Did he get shorted even in health? Um, yeah. That's it. <laughs> yeah, because you get shorted based on what you've done. So, yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. Okay. Um, anything else? Okay. Which are? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Treachery. Uh, treachery? Yeah. Okay. And the ashes were what happens when you're bitten by the snake in the same place with the other snake, but somehow bore and stuck it somewhere. Mm-hmm. And then you resurrect. Okay, good. All right. What I brought in today were, I just wanted to show you, we're going to do more of this with Purgatory, but I wanted to show you a couple of modern translations by, um, by contemporary, major contemporary poets of um, Dante. So, and these, these are scenes that we're going to look at. We should look at Paolo and Francesca. Um, I'm not sure we're going to have time. How, how far into Purgatorio are we? Um, we who will... Okay. All right, good. Um, remember, there's a Purgatorio quiz, and I think I've learned my little lesson here, which is one quiz on Purgatorio on Tuesday. So you'll be wanting to read it. What do you think of Purgatorio compared to Inferno? More confusing? Why? Huh. What don't you understand? Why people are where they are. Okay. And what the actual landscape is like. Yeah. So, well, the, there's a diagram again at the beginning of um, the Hollanders. Um, every version of of, um, Don, of every modern version of Dante should have a diagram that looks more or less like this. And it's worth comparing to the diagram of hell in Inferno. There's probably a way, either metaphorically or possibly literally, um, that you can imagine that this mountain of purgatory um, is the exact supplement um, in a sphere, whatever the supplemental version of a sphere, the part taken out of a sphere um, to, to produce something else, but that the mountain of purgatory could fit exactly into um, Inferno. That is, that um, Inferno, what's happening is you're circling deep, more and more deeply in towards the center of the earth. Then in Purgatory, you're climbing a mountain, which gets narrower and narrower as you get to the top. And as you'll see again from this diagram, which is helpful, um, Dante has a little bit of a problem of getting seven deadly sins into nine regions. Um, he had something like that problem also, although less obviously, in Inferno. But what you'll see is um, once we get into Purgatory proper, once you go through the gate of Purgatory, um, leave what's called anti-Purgatory, the place that um, people um, have to go through before they even get to go into Purgatory itself the equivalent in purgatory of the place of the neutrals or even of limbo in the inferno. Once you get there, which gives you um, two of the regions, in, of the nine regions that Dante will really want, um, excuse me, one of the nine regions that Dante will really want in purgatory because nine is three squared. Um, once you get there, you get the seven deadly sins. <laughs> And um, if you look at the seven <laughs> deadly sins, essentially what you'll find is that we go from pride, which is the worst, all the way up to lust, which is the least bad of the sins. This more or less corresponds to the punishment for the de seven deadly sins in hell, where the least punished, the Paolo and Francesca, the first one that you get to in circle two in Canto 5, if you look at this diagram, is lust. 
So highest in the inferno, that is closest to our life, least horrible of the seven deadly sins that are being published in the inferno is lust, least horrible and least punished of the sins in purgatory is lust as well. Um, right before, right below lust is gluttony, right below lust is gluttony here, avarice here, avarice here. Um, sloth and wrath and envy and pride become a little bit harder to match up, but the whole point is Dante wants you to do the work of matching them up with their corresponding um, sins in hell. It's not that Dante is giving you a perfect, he is, he is or is trying to give you a perfectly structured um, universe, but like Joyce after him, or this is something that Joyce learns from him, part of the point of structure is for you to fill in the parts of the structure based on what he's given you. There's a way in which Dante is presenting you a kind of Sudoku puzzle. He's giving you enough to work all of it out. There's only one answer, at least that's what he wants, is for there to be only one answer. Um, but he's only giving you a couple of numbers in each line and each box and each row. Um, because, you, because those numbers are enough to figure the rest out. So if you were thinking of this as Sudoku, um, the fact that lust and gluttony are circles two and three in hell, or lust, gluttony, and avarice are circles two, three, and four, show you that lust match up with lust, gluttony, and avarice being the top three parts of the Mount of Purgatory before you get to the earthly paradise. You haven't gotten to that part yet, so it's okay, but always consult this diagram. It will always be helpful. Um, the puzzle about purgatory, I mentioned this before, the puzzle about purgatory is that in hell, people get, get slotted right where they should be slotted. Um, you go to hell um, if, I, as I hope you won't, um, if you have died and not repented at the moment of your death, purgatory, repentance even at the moment of death um, will get you to purgatory. But if you die without seeking God's mercy at the moment of your death, you will go to hell and you will not collect 200 lira. You will go straight to the appropriate jail for you. Um, purgatory, well, since, since I've said this, purgatory does have a free parking zone. Um, as you know in Monopoly, or you may not know, you're not supposed to get all the money in the middle when you land on free parking. Everyone plays it wrong. Did you know that? Yeah. Yeah, okay. You're, it's just free parking. It's just that's all it is. It's, yeah. So, so if you're taking the money from the middle, that's avarice, and you're in trouble. Um, but the free parking zone is where Balakwa is. He's not ready to make the climb. Um, he's, a, he's a character who's fascinated many, many, many people. Um, the character of Bellaqua. Um, those of you who've read his Dark Materials know that Lyra's original last name is Bellaqua. Um, those of you who've read Samuel Beckett's great um, book of connected short stories, More Pricks Than Kicks, will know that Bellaqua is, um, I already quoted this for you, but Bellaqua is the name of the main character. Um, Beckett was fascinated with Bellaqua, also with Sordella. At any rate, in purgatory, what's different and what really matters to Dante's thinking about this difference is that purgatory is dynamic. People have to labor up the mountain of purgatory. And what that means, Dante himself will say that his sin is pride. Um, he will say when he is climbing up the mountain. What we, I hope we'll get a chance to look at that passage today. But Dante knows where in purgatory he will most have to um, um, undergo purgation. That's a pretty sharp moment of self-analysis on Dante's part. Um, it comes at a moment when, as everything does in Dante, everything Dante says about himself is both a is a revelation, both to him and to us. It's not only that he's telling us, um, yeah, here's something else you need to know about me. It's that he's realizing things about himself, which is part of the point of the lesson that he's learning, that he has to realize those things about himself. And what he realizes, you could say, is the um, 
quantity of all the aspects of sinfulness, which is to say all the aspects of being human that belong to him as he passes through the various parts of hell. So, for example, it's certain, you could say, that the figures that he loves most in hell, not Virgil, who is the figure he loves most of all, but the figures that he loves most as he's descending through the circles are Paolo and Francesca. So that love, he loves love. Um, he loves the lovers. Um, and you can see that and he has pity for them. He melts with Ruth for them. Um, loving the lovers is um, a way in which they illustrate his own reaction to them. Um, that illustration of his reaction to them is important. It becomes more and more interesting as you get deeper and deeper. Does he betray the betrayers? Um, when we get to Ugolino, which we really will look at today, um, that's in a sense the last affectively powerful um, moment of the Inferno. Um, and um, Ugolino is there for treachery, but he is more sinned against than sinning. So, um, so purgatory, people are slotted in hell. So do people in purgatory get to skip the levels that aren't really... No, so that's the point. Them? That's the point. They get to rush through some of them. Okay. But purgatory is a mountain that everyone is climbing. <laughs> so the first thing we find in purgatory is Dante sees his old friend um, Cassina. Remember him? Who's he? The singer. And what does he sing? A love song written by... Ah, uh, you didn't check the note. Written by Dante, which is really interesting. So Dante meets Cassina and, 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 and he says, sing. And Cassina does. And what he sings is, we get the first line of the song. It's a poem that you can find. It's written by Dante. It, and you can find it um, in an earlier book of his. Um, so that's a really neat moment. Then what happens, by the way? Dante tries to embrace him and... Nothing. All right. Three times he tries and three times he fails. A really original idea on Virgil's part. Um, no, but a really elusive idea. A allusive. That is, he is alluding. Does everyone know what alluding with an A means? He is referring us to, wants us to think of Virgil and Homer. Um... Of course he wants us to think of Virgil and Homer. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, um, it's the, it's not absolutely clear how much Homer um, Dante knew. Um, the reason is because, well, there are two reasons. One is that Virgil was regarded as the greatest poet of all time at the time, um, not Homer. Um, Homer was regarded as a kind of um, fascinating prototype, but, that, but Virgil was the culmination of it. Um, so sort of like, um, if you know um, English literature, Marlowe and Shakespeare. Um, Marlowe was um, a very great playwright, but not a patch on Shakespeare, even though Shakespeare learned what he was doing from Marlowe most of all. Um, so, and then it's that Dante couldn't read Greek. Almost no one could. Um, so their understanding of Homer, their knowledge of Homer, um, all comes from translations, allusions, again, um, people who talk about particular passages in Homer. So Homer is a kind of strange figure because Dante actually does make him the greatest of all the poets in hell, but he's also the most inaccessible of the poets. And so the question of how much Dante knew about Odysseus's descent into hell um, that's, a, that's an open question. It's also the case that Odysseus is a villain in Dante, um, a villain that he is much more sympathetic to than Virgil is in the Aeneid, um, but still a villain. So he can't make Odysseus, he can't, he can't um, push Odysseus as someone who's made the descent into hell. And then Odysseus's descent into hell is much more hallucinatory. If he does know about it, it's more that Odysseus has a vision of hell. He's just standing in a pit. 
Whereas, um, whereas uh, the whole point about Aeneas is that the Sibyl has said the descent into hell is easy. Everyone does it when they die. So, so what Aeneas is doing is what Dante is doing. They are actually descending into the actual hell and not going into a kind of virtual reality um, booth, which in a way is what Odysseus is doing. So it's a good question, and I don't know if that's quite a satisfying answer, but it's true. I think that's a true answer, satisfying or not. Um, okay, when you go, one of the things that Dante um, is asking us to think through, I, I, the general look. I want to say again, generally, one of the really amazing things about Dante, one of the things that makes someone like James Joyce think that of all writers, Dante is second only to Shakespeare that makes Joyce um, place Dante above Homer and above Virgil, um, is, which, which I wouldn't quite do, but I'm not, sh- but, but, um, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure that I won't change my mind on that. But, but um, one of the things that makes um, the greatest writer in English in the 20th century um, rank Dante only below Shakespeare is that there is nothing... Um, you can there's no moment in Dante where you can think okay now I know how to go on now I see how things are going to go on that is um, the whole Sudoku part of it um, is also that Dante has a lot of tricks and when you try to figure it out it's like one of those fiendishly difficult level Sudokus where you can easily fill it in all right until you get to the last square and then realize that you got it all wrong. Um, and um, that takes a very, very clever um, puzzler, which in a way any writer is. Any writer that has you reading for the plot is producing a puzzle for you because you're guessing how it's going to um, pan out, um, and some of your guesses are right and some are wrong. And finally, what it means to read anything that you read for the plot if you don't know what's going to happen, is you get the solution at the very end. Um, parts of the solution throughout, as with Sudoku, um, some of the numbers are already put in for you, some are obvious, some less obvious, some you get only at the end, and also, very interestingly, in really, really clever puzzles, um, you can be, go a huge way down the long road before you... Wrong road. For the win, um, you can go um, a huge um, uh, distance down the wrong road, and then realize you were supposed to go down that road, with, although the puzzler never told you that. Um, did we talk about the New York Times crossword in 1996 on Election Day 1996 in this class? Um, so, so this is a very this this is actually um, I solved this crossword, and I was very pleased with myself. Um, but then it was in that movie about the the uh, crossword about the New York Times crossword competition. Um, they brought it up because they were so proud of it. So one of the clues um, on on election morning of 1996 was tomorrow's headline, um, and it was very clear that the last seven letters. It was 14 letters long, so it was the long middle. If you know crosswords, you know that the Times likes these long middle um, phrases, very long answers, which really are the, the point and key of the puzzle. So the last seven letters was elected. Um, and so it was 1996. The last seven letters um, was elected, and the clue was tomorrow's headline. So I thought, ah, Clinton, that's seven letters. The New York Times crossword is never wrong. I now know that Clinton is going to be elected today. I'm relieved or unhappy. I can't tell you my politics. Um, but I wanted to make sure this was right. So I looked at the downs for the first seven clues, and the first one was um, black Halloween animal, three letters. Cat, yes, all right. The next one was French 101 word, three letters, um, the second two letters were you and I. Louis, yeah, him. Good. It was really going pretty well. Um, the third one was um, 
U.S. government agency abbreviation, and it was blank R-A, so I, no problem there. The fourth was sewing term, and this time it went up, and it was Y-A-R blank. Yarn. Yarn. Yeah, so we were doing really well, and he solved all seven, and it was Clinton elected. So I was feeling really good about myself. I was driving to school. Um, I was in fourth grade. And um, my mom was driving me to school um, or something. And um, then suddenly I thought, but wait a second. Bob Dole also has seven letters. Shoot. So I said to myself, okay, but black Halloween animal. Uh-oh. <laughs> French 101 word ending with U-I. We. Oui. Uh-oh. <laughs> Government agency, there's the Business Resource Association. Not so good. Um, sewing term, yard, um, which actually is a technical term in sewing. Um, so, so what we had were seven letters with seven clues. Every single clue... Um, that, that is seven letters that belong to seven words. All seven of those words could either end or begin with the letters that made up Clinton or end or begin with the letters that made up Bob Dole. And all seven clues were perfect puns for all those seven words that could begin or end with C-L-I-N-T-O-N or B-O-B-D-O-L-E. Um, so that was totally brilliant on um, the New York Times' part. Um, of course, when they gave the solution the next day, they, also, they already knew, so they only gave the one solution. Um, but they also wrote an article about it so you would know how clever they were. Um, so, um, but the point is that, that that's an illustration of how... That's a nice illustration, not a mean illustration, of how a puzzle maker can be mean. Um, the great book about this is a book by Georges Perec, um, who some of you have heard me talk about. Um, Perec is the great French writer who belongs to Ulipo, who's most famous for a mystery he wrote called La Disparation. In English, that would be The Disappearance, um, which got very good reviews when it came out, exciting page-turner, blah, blah, blah. Um, in French, none of the reviewers noticed that um, what disappeared in The Disappearance was the letter E, which does not appear in the book except in its author's name on the title page. This is harder to do in French than in English. Um, so Perrick also wrote, uh, do you know what palindromes are? Um, yeah. Perrick wrote uh, an essay on palindromes, which is 5,000 words long. Is it a palindrome? It is. Um, wow. So um, his great book is a book called Life um, uh, Instructions for Use. Um, and... Abel was I your I saw Elba. You know what that is? Race car? Race fast safe car? Yes. <laughs> Good. Um, a man, a plan, a canal, Panama. Um, so yeah. And um, but um, his his greatest book is this long novel called Life a User's Manual, which is about a puzzle maker, and it is a puzzle itself. In Life a User's Manual, the sort of the, the, the last thing that happens in the book is this guy's been working on a puzzle for 20 years and at the end, a jigsaw puzzle and at the end of 20 years he has one piece left and one hole for that piece and the piece is in the shape of an X and the hole is in the shape of a W and he's completely put the puzzle together wrong um, and he realizes that he was supposed to put it together wrong so Dante is any any writer will do some version of this. Dante is doing a version of a very strong version of this. Yeah. Have you heard of House of Leaves? Yeah, yeah. Um, very few people finish that book, but it's really interesting. That's my understanding. Yeah, and I'm, I'm pretty sure why. Yes, um, longer than it is clever. How's that? <laughs> um, very clever, longer than it is clever. But, but it is really good. I haven't finished it. I've tried. Um, Isn't it also supposed to be really scary? Well, I don't find it scary. There's a very famous page in House of Leaves where um, uh, Danielewski, I think that's how you pronounce it, um, tells you you better not look up from the page that you're reading because um, someone has snuck into the room behind you. And, um, all right. What Dante does is every time you think you have him pegged, you don't. 
Now, one of the things about Dante is that that's a challenge from the start. What he says is, I'm going to tell you what hell is like. Um, and it's going to get worse and worse. And by the time you get to the, like the fifth or sixth circle, you are actually saying to yourself, it really can't get much worse than this. And Dante is saying to you, you may think so, but it's actually going to get a lot worse. And he, in a way, is challenging you to try and imagine how he's going to be able to top what he's already done. Now, in hell, that's not that big a deal because he's playing his cards a little bit slowly. That is to say, he's, he's, you can tell that there's some face cards he hasn't played. But still, it really does get pretty gross as you get down um, and, and pretty imaginatively gross as you get down towards, um, towards where Dis himself is. Um, no one is expecting Ugolina, who we're about to turn to. Um, Paradise, and I'll just say this about Paradise, Paradise is the hardest of that top this structure of Dante. That is, if you get, if Paradise has nine levels, which it does, you get to the first level, it's heaven. I mean, it's got to be perfect. So how can you have nine levels of perfection and sustain interest for the reader through nine levels of amazingness and perfection? Um, if you've seen 2001, it's like the last 10 minutes of 2001, most people find boring um, because it's like, okay, amazing, hallucinogenic, phantasmagoric, incredible colors and lights, and we don't know what's going on. Fine. 30 seconds of that is great. 10 minutes of that, <laughs> you're like, what? Why am I watching Revolution Number 9? Um, it's really hard to do once you get to some sort of um, um, peak of incredibleness, which Paradise had better be from the start. Hell doesn't have to be incredible from the start. Um, purgatory doesn't have to be incredible from the start. Paradise is paradise. It had better be incredible from the start. And it is. But even so, Dante will keep outdoing himself sphere after sphere after sphere in paradise. Um, it's unbelievable what he's able to do there. Um, Julian. Yeah, in the order we're reading. Yeah. Um, partly you can tell because actually, even though the poetry starts out incredibly, um, he actually gets better and better as a poet um, as he works this out. Um, you can, a little bit like Shakespeare, you can trace a career that goes from amazing to um, unbelievably amazing to it was worth being alive to read this, this is so amazing, to maybe I should convert amazing. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah, and, and failed. Yeah. <laughs> it's just absolutely, positively, 110% cool. Um, <laughs> All right, so um, so the thing about purgatory, then this is this is a long wind-up, quick pitch. What you um, need to know about purgatory, how it differs from inferno structurally, um, is that people move through purgatory, which means that the thinking in purgatory is that as you get purged of a sin, you still have to be purged of the others. That each sin contains within itself as a series of, you could say, concentric circles, the sins above it. So that the sin of pride includes within it the fullness of pride. It's like white light. It has all the other colors in it. So pride includes within it envy, wrath, sloth, avarice, gluttony, and lust. All of those plus some um, particularity in pride. All of those go to make up pride. So if you get rid of the particular proud thing, then you have envy, which includes within it whatever is particular to envy, plus wrath, sloth, avarice, gluttony, and lust. This might be easiest to see with gluttony. Gluttony is sort of overall I want to consume, including sexual consumption. 
So get rid of gluttony and you can still be left with the desire for sex, which is lust. But each of the sins contains within it everything else. Each of the sins has to be washed away so that the next sin can be the next one washed away. How is this depicted in purgatory? Sorry? Well, it's the terraces, but it's also a sign, or seven signs. Yeah, the P, which stands for? The footnote said. Eh, wrong footnote, sorry. Stands for sin. Um, as in our word impeccable, um, um, comes from a word which means um, stain or dirt. Um, and um, there then comes to mean sin, um, peccatus, sin. Um, so, so all seven sins belong to everyone by virtue of being human. No human who has to go through purgatory isn't guilty of all seven of those sins. However, they're in a different balance. So you can rush through some of them and go to um, the one that's, that is most... Um, um, the place where you stalled in your life. Dante stalls early. He stalls at pride. Um, and then what you have to see is, so what are you proud of? Um, why is pride the lowest of the sins? What is it that you are so proud of? Um, why is pride, in a sense, the culmination of the sins? This, by the way, is not only Dante's idea that, that pride is all the other sins in one. Um, but why is pride all the other sins in one? Well, partly you could say because pride won't acknowledge that it's sinful. All the other sins are sins that people might want to fight against. Envy is unpleasant. Wrath is unpleasant. Avarice and sloth, you may wish you didn't have them. But proud people don't go around saying, oh man, I wish I weren't so proud. God, it's just terrible of me that I'm so proud because proud people are proud of being proud that's the whole point that's when people get angry at others which is how wrath feel, falls under proud um, well he dissed me um, and that's why I'm so angry um, the idea that someone could diss you means you're indicating that your own pride and you're not, you're not saying I shouldn't react you're saying of course I'm going to react if I'm disrespected, as though you deserve respect, as though any human being deserves respect. So pride, in a sense, is the sin that is least able to, um, for, that the sinner is least able to counteract by himself or herself. And so when Dante says, as he will, that his sin is pride, that that's his big problem, in a sense, what he's saying is this whole poem is a monument to that fact. Of course, he's proud of the poem. And the kind of humility he has to learn as he writes it is a humility that's almost impossible to learn because he's writing it, because he knows what he's doing, um, because he knows what he's done in writing the Divine Comedy. He knows how great a poet he is. And that for him is a danger, knowing how great a poet he is. Um, it's almost always a danger. One of the last dangers, or the rarest dangers for a great writer, is to talk to other humans um, knowing, which you do need to know. To be a great writer, you have to know yourself to be a great writer, um, because you have to have absolute self-confidence. But that self-confidence can also be very off-putting. And that is a very, very tricky thing, a besetting danger for the great. Um, Joyce, again, is another very good example of that. No writer more off-putting than Joyce. Um, people take, lots of people take one look at Joyce and say, I don't need this crap. Um, so he's great, so what? I don't need it. Um, so that is also true for Dante, um, that, that pride in the very thing that he's doing in the way he's been picked out 
by the entire universe, by God and by um, the highest levels of heaven to be the person who's going to describe for human beings what the afterlife is. Of course he's in danger of pride. There's no question that he's in danger of pride. Okay, let's look. I want us to look um, at Merwin. Do people know who W.S. Merwin is? Yes. Um, wonderful, wonderful poet. Um, now in his 80s. Yeah. Yes. Um, actually, they're all three here, so you can pass them whoever else needs them. Um, so this is Merwin on Ulysses. And um, go, this is his translation. There's a book which is called The Poets Dante, which has a lot of poets translating um, as many as three cantos of the Inferno. Or maybe it's called The Poets Inferno, um, edited by a man named Daniel Halpern. Um, no one translates more than three of the cantos. Um, and some of the translations are better than others. Uh, Richard Wilbur does one of them, and he's a very, very good poet who is a formal poet who rhymes. Um, so he's um, worth looking at, but I'm going to bring in Shelley's translation of Matilda on um, Tuesday. So you'll see another Terzarima translation of Dante. Um, Merwin um, will sometimes rhyme a little bit, um, but he's, he's essentially a poet who doesn't rhyme, but um, an amazing poet whom no one doesn't love if they read him. Um, if anyone's taking contemporary poetry next semester, I think they're doing Merwin on that. Um, so um, go to uh, the second... Um, uh, the first sheet, the, the Merwin translation 26, but the right hand top. Um, so Dante to Virgil says, My master, I said to him, hearing you has made me sure, but I, I had already guessed it was so and moved to ask you, who is in that fire that comes divided at the top as though it rose from the pyre where Ateocles was put beside his brother? He answered me, Inside that one, Ulysses and Diomed suffer, and so together they endure vengeance as they went in anger, and in their flame they groan for the hiding in the horse which made the doorway for the noble seed of the Romans to come through. Inside there they lament the art that is made, Daedamia, even in death, mourn for Achilles, and there they are punished for Palladium. If those who are inside the sparks can speak, I said, I pray you fervently and pray again, pray you a thousand times not to refuse to allow me to wait until the horned flame comes here where we are. See how the longing is bending me toward it and he to me. What you pray is worthy of much praise and therefore I accept it. But you must put a curb on your own tongue. So notice that Dante has to be silent while the tongue of flame speaks. That word tongue which flames have in both Eng flames and humans both have in English. Um, flames and humans also both have in Italian. Um, tongues of flame and human tongues, that's an image which you can find in a lot of languages. Um, the idea that what you see is a tongue of flame. It's not a, it's not a synonym. It's the same word and the image is um, the same in Italian as in English. Um, so um, you must hold your own tongue, put a curb on your own tongue. Leave the speaking to me, for I understand what you desire. And it could be that they, since they were Greek, might scorn what you would say. So here are Greeks talking to a descendant of Romans and talking to the great Roman poet. After the flame had arrived somewhere that, that seemed to my guide to be the time and place, this is what I heard him say to it, O oh, you that are two within a single fire, if I deserved much of you while I lived, if I deserved of you much or little, when in the world I wrote the high verses, do not move on, but one of you say where, when he had lost himself, he went to die. The larger horn of the ancient flame began to shudder, murmuring the way a flame does when the wind harries it. So there's one of those Dantesque similes um, where you're brought to a bleak, image, not of hell, but of earth, of a flame in the wind at night, harried by the wind. Then the tip, moving back and forth as though it were the tongue that was speaking, flung a voice out of itself, saying, 
when I left, and here's Ulysses' story, when I left Circe, who for a year and more had held me back, close to Gaeta there, before Aeneas gave the place its name, not affection for my son, nor reverence for my old father, nor that rightful love that should have brought joy to Penelope could subdue the ardor I had in me to become experienced in the, in the world and in human iniquities and worth. So he goes home, he leaves Circe, he goes home, and then, even so, he can't stay there. Um, where, what is this picking up in the Odyssey or in whatever access to the Odyssey he had? Yeah. He had to go where Right. Yeah. So, in fact, that's not what happens in Dante. But the the um, prophecy that Tiresias makes to him is, you will go home, you'll be happy, but then you'll make one more journey, and then you will die far from home. And that's what Dante is picking up. That is that Odysseus goes home, and yet the desire to wander comes upon him again, and he can't stay home and he dies far from home. So that's what Dante picks up. And um, the story that he then tells is, I, um, I set forth on the open sea with a single ship and that small company that by then had not deserted me. So those who still followed him, again, Tiresias said, you will get some followers to go with you. One shore and the other I saw as far as Spain, far as Morocco, the Isle of Sardinia, and the other islands that sea washes round. I and my companions were old, and near the end, when we came to the Narrows, where Hercules set up his warning markers for men to tell them they should sail no farther. On the right hand, I left Sevilla behind. On the other, I had already left Cayuta. So do people know what the Pillars of Hercules are? Do you? Anyone? Edge of the Strait of Gibraltar. Yes, it's the edge of the Strait of Gibraltar. So after that, you go out to the Atlantic. And Mediterranean sailors did not sail there. Sailors in Dante's time did, but not much. Um, that is, they did sail down the coast of Africa, um, out through the Mediterranean, and then south down the coast of Africa. Um, but they didn't go very far. Yeah, Julian. Yes, Tennyson is actually, in his great poem, Ulysses, he is thinking of um, Dante even more than he's thinking of Homer. So what Tennyson does in his great poem, Ulysses, is to give the speech that Ulysses um, gives to the men that he is asking to go with him on this last journey. So Tennyson kind of um, expands. Dante is expanding a moment in Virgil, and then Tennyson is expanding a moment in Dante. Um, when? Oh, not oh to fight, not to yell. Yeah, probably. He's referring to Tennyson. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we will fight them on the beaches. That one. We will fight them on the roads. Yeah. Um, we will never surrender. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. Um, I and my companions were old, and near the end, when we came to the Narrows, where Hercules set up his warning markers for men to tell them they should sail no further. On the right hand, I left Sevilla behind. On the other, I had already left Cayuta. Oh, brothers, I said, who through a hundred thousand perils have arrived at the West, do not deny to the little waking time that remains to your senses, knowing for yourselves the world on the far side of the sun that has no people in it. So learn about this other world. Um, that phrase is literally in Italian, this short vigil of the senses. And that's, um, that, that's one of the amazing phrases in Dante, this short vigil of the senses. That's a literal translation. That, for Ulysses, is what it means to be alive is that you have this, that life is a short vigil of the senses. He's not anticipating an afterlife. So what he says is, in this life, this short vigil of the senses, do not miss the opportunity to go to that land where there are no people. This is a crucial scene because Ulysses, it's going to get picked up in purgatory. It's not, it's not one of the scenes which, it, it's not only one of those scenes which is amazing in itself, which it is, but it's a scene 
that's going to get picked up in purgatory because this is the first hint of where purgatory is. Um, let us go back to the world on the far side of the sun that has no people in it. By that he means the southern hemisphere. Consider what you rose from. You were not made to live like animals, but for the pursuit of virtue and knowledge. With this short speech, I so wetted my companions for the journey that I then could scarcely have held them back and turning the stern toward the morning, which means they went... Yes, the stern towards the morning, which, mean, which means the stern towards the east and the bow towards the west. Turning the stern toward the morning, we made wings of our oars for the insane flight bearing over the whole time toward the left. So now they're going southward. Already the night could see all of the stars of the other pole. So now they've crossed the equator. Dante, what's the first thing that he sees when he gets out of hell? He sees stars, and what is interesting about these stars? Yeah, they're not northern hemisphere stars. He's never seen those stars before. No one has seen those stars since Adam and Eve, he says, um, because that's when the earth was tilted on its axis after the fall of Adam and Eve. So before that, you could see those stars, but then the earth gets tilted on its axis and the southern sky because, becomes much more inaccessible to northerners. So now, um, now Odysseus is seeing those stars. Um, we could see all the stars of the other pole and ours, that is the North Star, was so low it never rose above the ocean floor. So the North Star, which guides all travelers, is now gone. Five times the light under the moon had been lighted and as many times put out since we had entered on the deep passage. So they've sailed for five months. They've entered on the deep passage. So he's thinking of this as a kind of gigantic gulf or gigantic canyon um, between water and land as they sail southwards and see nothing. They did not know the geography. Dante did not know the geography of the southern hemisphere. No one in Italy did in 1300. Um, so down, they knew, they knew about Africa, or at least they knew about um, northern Africa, um, but they didn't, they didn't know about sub-Saharan Africa, and they did not know the geography. So Dante, like making up what the center of the earth is like, he's making up what the southern hemisphere is like. So five months, five times the light under the moon had been lighted, and as many times put out since we had entered on the deep passage, when a mountain appeared dark in the distance. What mountain is that? Purgatory. Yeah. So when a mountain appeared dark in the distance, and it seemed to me that it was higher than any I had ever seen before, at the sight we rejoiced, but that turned quickly to grief. For out of the new land a whirlwind rose that struck the bow of our vessel. Three times it spun her round with all the waters. On the fourth it lifted the stern up and drove down the prow as pleased another until the sea was closed over us. So Ulysses, the amazing sailor, almost sails to purgatory. Not quite. Um, possibly you should see this as, um, as a reference to Tiresias as a false prophet. That is, yeah, you'll get to a hill that is so far away from the sea that no one will recognize the sea anymore by the time you get to the top. But Ulysses doesn't get there. No one says, where did that threshing, um, what kind of threshing implement are you carrying? Possibly. It's not clear. It's, um, um, it's a way of interpreting that. Okay, let's just look at Heaney on, on Ugolino. Um, there are a couple of things I, we, we will broach Purgatory a little bit more today. Um, but this is the first Dante. Do people know who Seamus Heaney is? Uh, Nobel Prize winning poet, Irish, um, quite amazing. Uh, if you have read the Norton Anthology Beowulf, he's the translator of that. Um, and um, along with Merwin, he's one of the great living English language poets um, and uh, very much worth reading. So this is, um, he decided to translate a little bit of Dante, partly because he's thinking of Northern Ireland in Dantesque modes. And um, the poem before this in the book is a Dante-esque account of something that happens in Northern Ireland um, in his childhood. 
But at any rate, he decided just to translate um, some Dante. He then translated some more, and he translates the first three the first three um, cantos of Inferno in that book that I mentioned, um, the poet's version of Dante's Inferno, the one that Merwin comes from. This is from his, but but they don't have his translation of Ugolino in that book, so this is from a different book. Um, and he just plunges right in. We had already left him. I walked the ice and saw two soldered in a frozen hole on top of one another. One skull capping the others, gnawing at him where the neck and head are grafted to the sweet fruit of the brain, like a famine victim at a loaf of bread. So the berserk Tidius gnashed and fed upon the severed head of Menelippus as if it were some spattered carnal melon. You, I shouted, you on top, what hate makes you so ravenous and insatiable? What keeps you so monstrously at rut? Is there any story I can tell for you? in the world above against him. If my tongue by then is not withered in my throat, I will report the truth and clear your name. That's something that, again, notice happens over and over in Dante, is that he can bring messages to the living from the dead. Um, some of them don't believe him and will say, um, I'm only going to tell you my story because I know that you'll never go back to the land of the living. If you did, it would be very embarrassing for me. Um, but here Dante says, there must be some reason that you're doing this. Um, what can I tell you? What can I tell? The sinner, that is Ugolino himself, eased his mouth up off his meal to answer me and wiped it with the hair left growing on his victim's ravaged skull and said, even before I speak, the thought of having to relive all that desperate time makes my heart sick. Yet, while I weep to say them, I would, I would sow my words like curses that they might increase and multiply upon this head I gnaw. I know you come from Florence by your accent, but I have no idea who you are nor how you ever managed your descent. Still, you should know my name, for I was Count Ugolino. This was Archbishop Roger, and why I act the jockey to his mount is surely common knowledge how my good faith was easy prey to his malignancy, how I was taken, held, and put to death. But you must hear something you cannot know if you are to judge him, the cruelty of my death at his hands. So listen now. So now what Dante is telling you is, here is what I heard from Ugolino about how he died, the cruelty of his death, um, and what he's also telling us as a poet is this is my invention. I am making this story up. Ugolino and Roger are historical figures, but no one alive knows what happened, What I'm uh, the vision that I'm about to unfold for you. Others will pine, he goes on, as I pined in that jail which is called hunger after me, and watch as I watched through a narrow hole, moon after moon, bright and somnambulant, pass overhead, until that night I dreamt the bad dream, and my future's veil was rent. That is, he suddenly saw the future. For the veil to be rent means that what's hiding the future from him, which we all want hidden from us. No one wants the veil of the future to be rent. Um, but it was rent for him in his dream. I saw a wolf hunt in the dream. This man rode the hill between Pisa and Luca, hounding down the wolf and wolf cubs. He was lordly and masterful. His pack in keen condition, his company deployed ahead of him. Guilandi and Sismundi as well, and Lanfranchi, who soon wore down wolf father and wolf sons. And my hallucination was all sharp teeth and bleeding flanks ripped open. When I awoke before the dawn, my head swam with cries of my sons who slept in tears beside me there, crying out for bread. If your sympathy has not already started at all that my heart was for suffering, and if you are not crying, you are hard-hearted. So notice that Heaney now, in the intensity of the translation, starts rhyming a little bit, started rhyming with hard-hearted. They were awake now. It was near the time for food to be brought in as usual. Each one of them disturbed after his dream. 
when I heard the door being nailed and hammered shut far down in the nightmare tower. I stared at my son's faces and spoke no word. My eyes were dry and my heart was stony. They cried and my little Anselm said, What's wrong? Why are you staring, Daddy? But I shed no tears. I made no reply all through that day, all through the night that followed until another sun blushed in the sky. So notice the rhyme again. Reply in sky. And sent a small beam probing the distress inside those prison walls. Then when I saw the image of my face in their four faces, I bit on my two hands in desperation. And since they thought hunger drove me to it, rose up suddenly in agitation. You hear the rhyme? Desperation and agitation. Saying, Father, it will greatly ease our pain if you eat us instead, and you who dressed us in this sad flesh undress us here again. So then I calmed myself to keep them calm. We hushed that day, and the next stole past us, and earth seemed hardened against me and them. For four days we let the silence gather, then throwing himself flat in front of me, Gatto said, Why don't you help me, Father? So just keep noticing the rhymes, calm and them, um, gather and father. He died like that. And surely as you see me here, surely as you see me here, one by one I saw my three drop dead during the fifth day and the sixth day until I saw no more. Searching, blinded, for two days I groped over them and called them, then hunger killed, where grief had only wounded. Um, killed there, Heaney kind of wants you to remember that um, killed there actually means that it killed his ability not to eat them. That is what actually happens, you'll remember, is that after two more days, he can't stop himself. Hunger was victorious over um, his his um, mourning over that. Um, notice that um, notice how complex this description is. That the sons um, are, in some sense, their innocence is part of what this is about. That Ugolino suffers more than they do because he suffers on their behalf. They also suffer on his behalf. Father, if you're so hungry, eat me. But he calms them down and says, no, I'm okay. Part, one, a question you could ask yourself, which I'm about to answer, if you are asking it to yourself, I will answer it for you, um, is why is why Ugolino, why is Ugolino the last pitiful figure that we meet in Inferno? Um, let's finish this, and then um, we'll return to that. Um, so... When he had said all this, his eyes rolled and his teeth like a dog's, like a dog's teeth clamping round a bone, bit into the skull and again took hold. And then Dante speaks in his own voice against Pisa. Pisa, Pisa, your sounds are like a hiss sizzling in our country's grassy language. And since the neighbor states have been remiss in your extermination, let a huge dike of islands bar the Arno's mouth. Let Caprea and Gorgona dam their, their, their um, islands, you'll remember. Dam and deluge you and your population for the sins of Ugolino who betrayed your forts should never have been visited on his sons. Your atrocity was Theban. Theban is um, about Oedipus. Your atrocity was Theban. They were young and innocent who were... Hugh and Brigada, and the other two whose names are in my song. Now, that's actually quite an amazing last line, um, although it doesn't um, seem amazing when you first read it. But what he's essentially saying is, at least I am going to name them. They were killed horribly, but I am making sure to name all four. And Ugolino named two of them. Anselmo and Gatto. Those are the other two whose names are in my song. They're there. I have named them. But now I also have to memorialize the other two. That is Hugh and Brigata. Um, all four are going to be named here. Um, they're going to be named here because the naming here makes a difference. 
okay, once, once we get to purgatory, I said we'd start purgatory, we're going to start it for a minute. Once we get to purgatory, um, the first thing Dante sees are stars after all this darkness for so long. Um, and then the first thing people see of Dante is not that he has weight, but that he has a shadow. And that's the great puzzle in Purgatory. And Virgil doesn't, but he explains that I left my body elsewhere. And what you see now is not my body. Um, when they come upon the incredibly slow walkers of whom Cassina is one, when they come upon them, um, Virgil doesn't know where to go. And Dante says, maybe we can ask them. Let's go ask them. Maybe they can give us directions. And Virgil looks up and he says, that's a good idea, sweet son. He calls him his sweet son at that point. And what you should notice is how much less certain Virgil becomes, progressively less certain as they go through purgatory. Virgil has become a kind of father like Ugolino, um, who is losing authority and knows his knows he's losing it and says that's the right thing to be happening. Yeah. Also seems that Dante becomes a much more active character. Absolutely he does. Absolutely like, I, does. I, I remember noticing in, the, in one of the early Cantos and Purgatory, it's like, whoa, he's doing something by himself. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, his sin is not the story. Um, his sin is, he's in hell for what he's done, but what he's suffered is all that Dante cares about, not what he's done. And that's the crucial thing, that for Ugolino, it's the suffering, not the sin, that matters to Dante. For God, it's the sin. For Ugolino, it's the suffering. So, yeah. 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 Yeah.